Hi, my name is Chris Theophilogianakos, and I'm acting program officer at McKenzie House. We're standing in the recreated uh, print shop. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Pull Quotes. As you heard there, this week we visited McKenzie House, a museum which was the last former home of William Lyon McKenzie, Toronto's first mayor. We visited the house for a special exhibition about the first black woman publisher in North America, Mary Ann Shad. We met with one of the coordinators for the museum who took us on a tour of the space. Inside, we were greeted by a room dedicated to a printing press. In this room, you can print your own page of Mary Ann Shad's newspaper, The Provincial Freeman. In one hallway of the Mackenzie House, paintings of Mary Ann Shad line the walls with information about her life. Take a listen. Well, this is actually part of our ongoing programming at McKenzie House. We have a program here um, called the Black Press in Canada West. And Marianne Shad plays an important role in that. She's the first black female uh, newspaper editor in North America. And her print shop was just down the street on, on King Street. But Marianne Shad was never uh, a slave. She was freeborn. Um, and the reason she came to Canada was because of the Fugitive Slave Act, which was brought into the United States in the 1850s. Now, the dangers for Marianne Shad was, while she was not a, a slave, uh, because she was black, she could be kidnapped. Bounty hunters got paid for capturing escaped slaves. If they couldn't find those escaped slaves, they started to kidnap freeborns. And uh, this became very dangerous for her, and she, she comes to, to Canada, eventually settles in, um, in Toronto, where she opened her, her newspaper. But she also becomes an important voice for advocating for refugees to come to Canada. She writes a book, basically advocates um, for refugees to come to Canada, and it, it talks a little bit about life here, what it was like. And one of the things she highlights is that in Canada, blacks can open up a business, can start a new life. Um, and she kind of contrasts this to what was happening in the United States at, at the time. She publishes uh, The Provincial Freeman, her first newspaper, uh, March 25th, uh, 1853. Eventually in 1854, she moves the paper to Toronto, city building number five on King Street. And the motto of the paper was self-reliance is the true road to independence. Um, and this is, again, kind of her, um, her beliefs was that um, in order for um, the black community to prosper, um, in order for uh, the abolition of, of slavery, uh, the black community had to be self-reliant, but also united to form a political voice that, again, could fight slavery uh, in the United States. And we offer here an opportunity for people to actually print a copy of her newspaper, um, which is unique, um, I don't think, you know, you can get that experience anywhere else in the world. Now, oftentimes what's lost in Canada's history is this idea that Canada was a safe haven, blacks could come here, um, and everything was fine. Well, there was still racism. Um, and there was still, uh, you know, things weren't equal. Um, there were opportunities, but again, things were, were, were difficult for, for the black community here. Um, so what's important about her newspaper is that it did give the community a, a voice and it uh, helped uh, refugees kind of to establish themselves here. Again, to, to find support for work, for education, uh, and to again, to build this political voice to end slavery in North America. 
There were black uh, newspapers uh, around at the time. So Henry Bibb was, some people argue, one of her, one of her rivals. Uh, he actually was the first to have a, a black newspaper in Canada. The, the only difference was that she was a woman. And this is where uh, it was difficult for her. And that's why when she first starts publishing her newspaper, she's not uh, putting her name on it as the editor. She has Samuel uh, Ringgold Ward as a, um, her, her editor. Um, he was just a, a friend. And then she starts to sign her paper as M.A. Shad, right? again, not revealing her, her name. In general, women in the 19th century, their role was to be mothers and wives, so they, they weren't working. Um, the, she is kind of the, the anomaly, and she did face backlash because of this. Um, usually women did participate uh, in the workforce, but they were kind of in the background helping their husbands. So Henry Bibb, who started the first newspaper, uh, black newspaper in Canada, his wife Mary helped him. She was kind of in the background, we don't really hear about her. I think where the influence of Marianne Shad is later, so not in the 19th century, her influence uh, is probably more relevant today, in spite of everything against her for being a woman. Um, for being black, you know, that she was able to overcome these um, and, uh, and to open up her own newspaper, um, to become a prominent political voice uh, in North America, not just Canada, um, you know, to be one of the first women to vote as well. Yeah. So Mary Ann Shad was an example of activism and social justice journalism of the 19th century. But it's February and it's Black History Month, so it's not surprising to see museums, schools and centres of social and community practice featuring key black leaders in Canada. But in the day-to-day, -day, we don't often talk about the legacy of black Canadians like Shad. Shouldn't we be? And how do we ensure that that type of legacy impacts future practice in the journalism world? In January, a joint report with the Canadian Journalists of Colour and the Canadian Association of Black Journalists set out a list of calls to action to increase diversity in the Canadian media. Anita Lee is the co-founder of Canadian Journalists of Colour, and she joins us in studio. And Nadia Stewart is the executive director for the Canadian Association of Black Journalists, and she joins us on the line from Vancouver. Thanks, everyone, and welcome to Pull Quotes. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much. So we opened our show today with a tour of Mackenzie House and the exhibit about Marianne Shad and her contributions to Canadian journalism and social justice. Yet over 170 years later, here we are. Anita, Nadia, could you tell us a bit about uh, what led you to being a part or starting, in, in your case, Anita, um, you, these organizations? Okay, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll take that first then. Yeah. So uh, we, I'm, I'm a co-founder of Canadian Journalists of Colour. There's one other co-founder, Sadi Ansari. And we, we started discussing possibly founding an organization of this sort like in mid-2018. Um, but we really decided to go forward with it in October 2018 after Sonny Dillon, um, the Global Mail reporter, wrote a Medium post about some of the microaggressions and discrimination he faced at the publication. So we felt like it was high time to, because the, there was public discourse going on, there was a lot of traction and, and conversation around this issue of diversity in Canadian media, Sadi and, and I decided to just launch this uh, Facebook group, which now has become, you know, there's a Slack group and also a website, cjoc.net as well. Uh, so it's just because the conversation was there and 
it ended up being really timely um, because in the interim year, like from 2019 to 2020, there's just been an increasing amount of conversation around the idea of diversity in media, especially in light of, you know, the Vancouver Sun editorial that was, you know, saying ethnic diversity in Canada is not a great thing. And then also in light of the fact that our the prime minister of our country was seen wearing, you know, brown face and black face. So it's just it's high time that we tackle this in an, uh, in an earnest and systemic way. Yeah, definitely. And and Nadia, I'd love to hear how you got involved with your organization as well. Absolutely. You know, the CABJ has been around since uh, 1996. Uh, so um, it, it does have some history in the Canadian media, but I came uh, to, I guess, interact with the organization in 2010. And that's when I started working in the industry, moving uh, to another province, actually, to take my first um, my first news job. And I just really felt like, you know what, I really need someone. Like, I need a mentor. I need someone who looks like me to just help me in this journey because it was such culture shock uh, leaving Toronto and going somewhere else. And I thought, you know, I, I can't be the only black journalist who's gone through this where you're the only one in the newsroom. Um, but at the time, the CABJ had uh, fallen apart. There had been a lapse in leadership. And um, there was no one there to run the organization. So fast forward six years later, and I and, uh, got in touch with the former president, um, and she was fully supportive of us putting together a team to relaunch um, the organization. As we came together to relaunch, you know, we were really focused on, on mentoring, on helping another generation of journalists. We also realized um, that we were having a lot of the same experiences, um, but also really hearing stories um, from other black journalists who were having you know, these experiences, be they, in, be they microaggressions or um, more overt um, instances or run-ins in their newsroom. Um, we also just, you know, based on observation, just started to see that maybe there was still some changes that need to be made. And so that is, you know, how the uh, CABJ was reborn in February 2018, and now we're moving into uh, really rolling out some programs and some initiatives that we're hoping are going to just make a change for Black journalists and across the industry in general. And what prompted you to write these calls to action? Um, so Anita, uh, when uh, the when CJOC relaunched, uh, you know, she got in contact with us, you know, just to say, hey, you know, we're here too, you know, welcome to the space and uh, to congratulate us on our relaunch. Um, and it was a several months later that we finally connected. And just as we began talking, we realized, um, that there were a lot of similarities in the things that we were seeing and things that we were hearing. And we just felt like it was time to, you know, maybe put on paper not just the fact um, that there needs to be change, but what that change could and should look like. And so we began working on uh, the calls to action, but as we got, so that was about mid-2019, as we got later on in the year, as Anita mentioned, there were these incidents. So there were these things that just kept on um, happening that really pointed to uh, the need for this dialogue to be industry-wide, to be national, and to really be open and out there. I'd also add that um, we, we I mean, this isn't the first time. CBJ and CJOC, um, although we're kind of spearheading this effort to produce the calls to action, these kind of 
movements and these efforts to spread awareness about the lack of diversity in Canadian media have been going on for decades. So what I've personally noticed is that every once in a while there'd be like a huge surge in conversation, like when Sunny Dillon's Medium Post came out, when the Vancouver Sun editorial came out, but then the conversation would die down. So we really wanted to, like Nadia said, turn lip service and words into actual actionable steps in a really way that was inclusive and an attempt to call in the industry. Because as you can see in the calls to action, they're very much uh, positioned in a way that says, we want to work with you, we want to collaborate, because everybody's responsible for making this change. Um, And the first call to action is self-reporting newsroom demographics. So why do you think, Anita, that Canadian newsrooms have been so resistant to reporting demographics? So I think think it's... I think there are many factors to this. So there are obviously a lot of publications, not a lot, but there's a a few that have been self-reporting. So obviously CBC, it's in their mandate, diversity is in their mandate, so they have to self-report demographics to some extent. But I think in a lot of ways... um, Canada in general, like our institutions, both media and political, don't really grapple with the ra- uh, the issues issues of race um, in a very meaningful way because of the fact that multiculturalism is entrenched in our constitution. So in, in a lot of ways, we, we as a country tend to rest on our laurels when it comes to conversations about race and multiculturalism and diversity in all respects. Um, so we tend to feel like we, we put it on... The, on the side, we sideline it because we don't necessarily think it's an issue that we have to deal with. But obviously, you know, with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's calls to action and all these, uh, you know, the emergence of the Black Lives Matter movement, there's obviously a lot of energy around this issue. And, and now we see that's obviously not the case, that there are a lot of issues or, or, you know, problematic racial issues in this country. So I think that's like the biggest issue that, you know, Canadian institutions, including media ones, just don't really consider it necessarily um, a massive priority because we don't really see a need for it. Um, but I think that is slowly changing given the tenor of the conversation recently. Mm-hmm. And, and Nadia, for you, you know, what, what are some of the things that you've noticed um, in terms of reporting demographics and the spaces that you've worked in? Uh, you know, like uh, Anita mentioned with the CBC, you know, the, those demographics are, are tracked um, there. But, but our concern or, or our, our hope really, is that we'll start to see that um, done at, um, at, at organizations across the board. I think the question of why is something that, um, that I personally still wrestle with because I, do, I don't know why. You know, mm-hmm. I, I really am eager to have conversations uh, with those in leadership um, for those other organizations, those other news outlets, as to why, you know, why this is not something that, uh, that we do. Mm-hmm. As we mentioned in the paper, you know, you measure what matters. And so we talk so much about diversity mattering. Like it, it matters to us. It matters to um, um, you know our, our our communities. It matters to our audience. It, it it's important, and yet we don't measure it. So that question of why is something that I'd like to ask myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just to add to that, uh, yeah, Nadia, you make a really good point. It's, I mean, what I what I think is like just an analysis as a media analyst for a long time, but I definitely don't really want to speculate. I think it's yeah. it's a question that we should definitely ask the industry to ask them why, because yeah. we, we'd love to know. <laughs> and Anita, you've worked in legacy media organizations like the Globe and Mail, Toronto Star, CTV, mm-hmm. and as well as news organizations such as Mashable, The Discourse. Mm-hmm. Um, do you see improvements in diversity in the newer digital-only media? outlets? 
Yeah, I would say so. So the first half of my career was, like you said, in Legacy, so C- the star of the Globe, CBC, CTV, and the latter half was at American Digital Media Startups. And those startups tended to be because they were they were young. They they were definitely made up of, of a younger demographic. So it tended to be a flatter hierarchy. And especially in the early days of digital media, um, there were a lot of more up and coming journalists there, as opposed to because a lot of the more established journalists were mostly at Legacy. So what the kind of culture that emerged was one that was one that was more innovative and took a lot more risk. So there was a tendency to take a lot more risk on coverage that a lot of establishment publications wouldn't normally pursue. So at Ma- at Mashable, I, it was the first time I covered the Black Lives Matter movement. I covered a lot of issues of police brutality. I, I did a lot of stories in America that I couldn't necessarily do in Canada, and that's actually part of the reason why I have to move to the U.S., uh, because I didn't feel like our coverage on race and diversity was robust enough, um, and it was a little too binary, a little too reductive. So there definitely is a difference at... Um, at different digital media startups, though I definitely think that's changing now because as you know, this conversation progresses and because there's so many, especially in America, there's it's a bit more progressive in terms of media. So establishment publications, including the New York Times and Washington Post, if you notice, have really changed uh, the tone of their coverage uh, around diversity and just this sheer amount of coverage that they dedicate towards issues of diversity. And and Nadia, I just want to break down the calls to action a little bit more. There's another calls to action that expresses the need to hire more editors, more reporters of colour, and to work with organisations such as yours to further get access to that talent. And it, in your work, do you see news news media reaching out for this sort of help? You know, we, we are seeing, um, you know, more diversity in the reporter ranks, and, and that's a great thing. You know, I remember being, you know, the only one in some of my newsrooms, the only one, you know, the only um, black woman, and now moving to other newsrooms where that's not anymore the case. You know, I can look around the room and I do see um, more journalists of color. So that that is encouraging to see it in the reporter ranks. But when we look at what we're seeing relative to the Canadian population, I think that's really the comparison. Mm -hmm. Um, Are we still... Um, you know, where we need to be in terms of enough representation within um, our newsrooms to truly reflect the diversity of the nation. And so that's really what we're, what we're looking at when we talk about, you know, increasing that number. At the end of the day, we, we also do believe that the representation needs to rise higher than just the reporter ranks and up into management, that management level, because that, we believe, is where it will have an even greater impact. Um, in terms of bringing about change in newsrooms, change in the way we cover communities, change in the way that we interact with our communities, people from these racialized communities, uh, those of us who have grown up with these experiences, we bring the perspective, um, you know, of those experiences with us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we really need to see that at that level, and that'll also just kind of further that um, that work in terms of representation. And both of your organizations set up surveys to assess the level of representation among new staff and management, and also to assist media organizations with hiring more diverse staff. Um, have any media outlets contacted your organizations to work on the calls to action? So yes, there's definitely been, so there's a couple things I want to say about that. When we first released on January 28, there was a really strong response online um, from our industry, from both establishment and startup media, which was really heartening, as well as even people like journalism educators who are really high profile and well-respected, um, both largely in Canada, but also in the U.S. and abroad, and a little bit of the members of the public too, which is really also heartening because at the end of the day, we're journalists who serve the public. So if the public is paying attention to this conversation, um, 
then and they want us to move towards my di- more diverse coverage and more hiring of um, people of color, that's only a positive thing because it'll, you know, really, I think, apply, encourage the industry to really take steps forward um, in this area. In terms of media outlets, we definitely have had both establishment media organizations and start media organizations reach out to us. We don't necessarily want to uh, like publicize their names yet because we want them, we actually want the the publications to do that on their own accord because I think it's more powerful if they say, hey, we've worked with these two organizations, we're committed to this cause as opposed to us speaking on their behalf. Um, and beyond that, like I, there's certain names I can share. CJOC has worked consistently with establishment media as well as start media uh, when it comes to workshops um, and, well, not workshops, like just events that they've sponsored um, uh, including programming as well. So places that we worked with include HuffPost Canada, Vice Canada, the Globe and Mail, um, City News, and now we're and, and Global News as well. We're working on events with. So there has been a lot of support, um, but we're really, really hoping for like genuine engagement around this. So really, it's still early, early days, mm-hmm. and we're hoping to continue the momentum. And it's the same thing for the CABJ in that it is early days. Much like CJOC, we have been in touch with um, more established outlets, um, I'd say, than, than startups uh, to talk about, you know, what can be done, how can we work together to, uh, you know, to find that talent, to recruit um, those Black Canadians, uh, Black Canadian journalists. Um, so much like CJOC, you know, we're, we're always eager to do more and have more, um, more connections. Mm-hmm. And and actually, like we've here at Ryerson, we've done a lot of reporting workshops on how to you know improve our coverage of diversity in Canada, but also encourage more students here to 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 be part of the journalism program. And and we definitely recognise that there's an issue you know in our own classroom sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I know in the report it mentions that like having workshops sometimes can be very much a band aid solution, which I definitely agree. Like having been part of those workshops sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are some of the ways that you outline in the calls to action that actually is could be a way to reevaluate and sort of reset how we address lack of diversity in newsrooms? Yeah, so I love that question because it's it's something that I do as a media consultant. I've, I've held diversity inclusion workshops for uh, one, one J school and uh, a few media startups so far, and this is my approach. So um, are you... Are you guys familiar with story circles by any chance? I feel like I've heard mm-hmm. it. Yeah. So yeah. this is something that I actually teach at, uh, in UTSC Centennial's journalism program. But essentially story circles are, they have their roots in indigenous communities, but essentially it's a way to surface solutions to a systemic problem. Um, and it, it's like a three-hour structured uh, process where a group of a small group of people come together and they kind of brainstorm solutions to a particular issue that's confronting them. So I use that as an approach. Uh, I've hosted like story circles around diversity and inclusion for both faculty and students. And it's really interesting because what it really does is hold the attendees accountable. But because usually when people think of developing their own ideas for uh, or own solutions, they're far more likely to enact them if they have developed them, developed those ideas themselves. So that's the whole idea where you kind of collaborate, you figure out what's the best uh, way to approach diversity and inclusion at this particular institution because there's no one size fits all band aid solution. And then I basically collect all the feedback and I reflect it back to. Uh, that particular community, whether it's faculty or students, and say, these are the things that you committed to doing. Now let's go do them. Um, The other approach that I usually take with diversity 
in terms of onboarding people um, through the stage of, of growth and understanding about this issue is I usually start with the business case first. So I say, you know, diversity is a way to increase uh, your, you know, your number of audiences, and it's also a way to monetize more audiences. And then the next approach I take is to talk about the civic importance of of diversity. So obviously, you know, journalism is a public service. It's uh, a pillar of democracy, and so. It's our responsibility as journalists to accurately reflect Canada as it truly is, including all of including all of its diversity. So that's the next thing I emphasize. And then the last thing I emphasize is actually the moral imperative. So it's usually, you know, just the fact that these are human beings whose narratives mm-hmm. and stories need to be told. And usually that's, you know, ideally you would love for somebody to just inherently understand that. But I also empathize and I understand that everybody has different lived experiences and maybe that's not so intuitive. So I kind of take people through that process. So by the time I get to the moral stuff, there's just like, oh, wait, like this actually makes sense in every respect, you know? You mentioned the Truth and Reconciliation Report um, yeah. from that was published in 2015. Um, and there was obviously a few calls to action in that that particularly targeted journalism schools, but also CBC and APTN. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, you know, in, in creating this report, like how much you looked at that and looked at how far we've come so far, like in terms of addressing these issues, did did that play into you guys writing the, the uh, calls to action? So we actually, we worked with um, JSource. So JSource obviously published yeah. our calls to action. And it was actually on the suggestion of the editor and also, and the EIC, Sonia Fata, to take a look at these calls to action. So Nadia and I are both familiar with the CTAs, but we were... Like this wasn't part of we weren't considering to include it because it's a standalone document. But I it was a really good insight on Sonia's part to be like, hey, this is actually really relevant. So we decided to include I think it was the 86th call to action, um, which is to basically teach about uh, in J schools, uh, mandating them to teach um, indigenous history in journalism courses, which I think is really necessary. So we felt like it fit really nicely with our seventh call to action. Mm-hmm. That that um, 86th call to action. Um, I think is important just because when when I remember going through J school, we didn't talk anything about Indigenous history in Canada. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. and when you get out into um, the real world, you know, and you are you are doing these stories, you realize how much you don't know. And so, if we can give students, um, particularly journalism students, who need to have that breadth of knowledge, if we can give them that start, really, they should be. Kids should have that start in grade school, but that's for another conversation. But at least we can we give them that start in J school. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Mm-hmm. And Nadia, the calls to action were released on January 28th. So we're wondering, what has the reaction been from the media and from the general public? You know, so far it's been a good reaction. Um, as Leah will, will tell you as well, you know, we've gotten a lot of response on social media. Um, people have been sharing these calls to action um, and, and right across the board, you know, we're talking reporters, but also those in positions of leadership um, at no news outlets across the country. So we have had um, a good response and uh, both Anita and I have been fielding um, requests from, from organizations and um, from other groups um, looking to, to show their support. We do, though want to see more in terms of, um, you know, the, the response that leads to action, you know, responses, connections that lead to change. And so, you know, we, we have been doing a lot of talking, more interviews mm-hmm. <laughs> after um, those calls to action have, uh, have come out in order to, um, 
the further that we're still, I mean, it's early days still. What is this, like two weeks now? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, it's only been about two weeks. So um, it's still early days, uh, and we're hopeful that in the weeks to come, there will be more connections made. I've spoken to a few places that have, have shown interest, like possible funders and possible collaborators around actually turning the calls to action into just putting them in kind of maybe workshop or uh, some sort of yeah workshop formats so that, for example, the first call to action, I would love to hold some sort of workshop. CJSC holds some sort of workshop where we invite heads of DNI committees and um, leaders across um basically Canadian media, to come and co-collaborate on what a data-driven survey survey of newsroom dev- demographics would look like. Because I feel like it can be a lot more thoughtfully done that way. And again, it'll hold them accountable. Because if you're co-creating something, then you're far more likely to actually take action on it. So for me, it's about concretizing um, the actions when it comes to the uh, when it comes to the calls to action and actually moving it forward beyond just talking about it because I think we've talked about it enough everybody really I feel like generally speaking the information is out there for people to understand why diversity inclusion is important across all institutions including and especially media so now is just the time to start you know walking the walk yeah well thank you so much both for being on our show today so thank you so much genuinely yeah we really appreciate you guys just taking the time to amplify this. And that's really what this is about for us, you know, amplifying this oh, and taking this, like Anita said, you know, beyond a conversation to concrete change. So thank you for being part of that. Oh, mm-hmm. thank you very much. Well, thank you guys yeah. so much. Yeah. Anita Lee is the co-founder of the Canadian Journalists of Colour and Nadia Stewart is the executive director for the Canadian Association of Black Journalists. So that's it for our show. And if you liked our podcast today, let us know your thoughts on Twitter at Ryerson Review and on Instagram at the Ryerson Review. Our podcast was produced by myself, Tanya Sarek, and our guest producer for this week, Karen Longwell. And our editor is Ashley Fraser. Special thanks to technical help from Angela Glover, and thanks to our guests this week, Anita Lee and Nadia Stewart. Our executive producer is Sonia Fata, which we would like to make a note today that she is also the editor-in-chief of JSource, which published the calls to action we discussed today. See you next time. <laughs>